Bibles to Genesis 37. Uh, my name is Stephen Wetzel. I, I uh, help out with the uh, Young Professionals Ministry here. Uh, yeah, come on, yo pros. But we've been going through Genesis as a church. Uh, and so we're here at one of the, actually the more uh, well-known parts of Genesis, uh, the, the beginning of the story of Joseph. And so we're going to read here... Verse 30, uh, sorry, chapter 37, verse 1. We're just going to read the whole chapter to set the stage here. This is something we're all pretty familiar with, but let's uh, really try to see this with fresh eyes. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending his, the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. This time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dithon. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dithon. But they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, They plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain? If we kill our brothers and cover up his blood, come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who had took him to Egypt. 
When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't, isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then, Joseph, then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Amen. Again, this is, a, this is a passage we are all familiar with. And I love passages like that because it's, it's always interesting to kind of try and take a look at it from fresh eyes. But this is something we're, we all know. This is like week two of any like Sunday school or like kingdoms, uh, kids kingdom class that you've ever done. And I think like somewhere in my parents' house uh, sitting around is like a brown paper bag coat that got decorated by me sometime in like 1999. Uh, like this is all something we, we know. And it's, it's, it's interesting because we, I think like I read this story now and I realize like how incredibly dark this is. And it's like, how do we actually explain this to children? <laughs> like we go very quickly. We start out with like family, 10 sons. And like a page later we end with attempted murder and like human trafficking. <laughs> and it's like, oh yeah, like some, somehow, like, we, we, we take this bit about, like, a, a richly ornamented or, you know, a technicolored dream coat, and we're like, ah, yes, children will enjoy this. <laughs> and then, like, the rest of it, we're like, yeah, well, you know, we'll just, like, skirt around that, I guess. Uh, but there's, like, very little in this passage that's, like, actually encouraging. Uh, you know, he, he gets this, this, this coat, which is nice, but it only, like, serves to set up everything else in this passage that, like, just goes wrong. Like, everything falls apart in Act 1. Usually in a story, like this is like kind of a three-part story. Usually a writer will wait until like act two for everything to fall apart and like build tension that way. But like right from the get-go, literally less than a page, we go, happy family, human trafficking. Like everyone's, everyone's guilty. People are enslaved. People have done terrible things. Uh, and it, it's a very interesting passage to kind of preach from even from that standpoint of like what's, what is the redeeming quality here when everything ends in darkness and turmoil? Uh, and I think, like, if we look at this passage from Joseph's perspective, it's really, I mean, obviously it's quite traffic, obvi- uh, uh, tragic, but even if you take out the end bit where his brothers uh, throw him into a cistern, they, they, they try to murder him, and they end up selling him into slavery, even before that, if you look at Joseph's perspective, it's, it's a very interesting situation that he's being brought up in. And I think, like, just imagine... Even before all that, like how difficult it would be to navigate a situation where like all of your older siblings, uh, every, you know, most of the people that you probably look up to are trying to emulate, people you probably admire, all hate you. All 10 of your older brothers like hate your guts. And I think it would just be so confusing uh, to be so favored and so loved, but then like so hated for that. Uh, you know, and it's, and be so hard, I think, even to trust that love. Seeing like what it really got me in the end was just like the anger and the hatred of the, the brothers that I probably respect and look up to. Uh, and it really 
Seems that every step of the way, any love or favor that Joseph gets just like serves to make people angry with him. You know, and the father, you know, Jacob, his father gives him this coat. Uh, and all it does is like mark him out for his brothers to hate him out of jealousy. And then like God gives him these dreams about how he's going to be lifted up. And it just brings him further hate. It just brings him further turmoil and further anger. And even his father rebukes him for these things. And I feel like if I was Joseph, I would have a sense of like, what good even is all this? (laughs) You know, like what good is this favor? What good is this love? If all it does is brings about hatred and all it does is bring about like an angsty family situation. Like it would just be, I, I, I don't even know like if I would know how to feel in those kind of situations. You know, what do these blessings even give me? What good are these things? And so in the middle of all this, Joseph goes to check on his brothers. And, you know, he's, he's at home for whatever reason. And his father uh, says, hey, go, go check on your brothers. Uh, he, he's obeying his father. He's going to apparently, he doesn't even know where he's going. <laughs> uh, he shows up and he's like, where are my brothers? And he's like, they don't even like graze their flocks here. Like they've moved on. Uh, and his brothers see them and they say, here comes that dreamer. Come now, let's kill him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. The title of my lesson today is Dreams Are Deadly Things. And it's interesting because this passage here uh, is on a plaque outside of a motel in Memphis, Tennessee. And it's the motel where Martin Luther King Jr. got shot. Dreams are deadly things. And this is such a twisted impulse for a brother to have for his flesh and blood. You know, and they, they go on to throw him basically down a well, you know, rough him up and then sell him into slavery. And this is their brother. You know, and Joseph's only crime was being loved, having dreams from God. And those dreams proved deadly. Uh, you know, when we end the chapter and everything is wrong, you know, and he has brothers who, there, there are these 10 brothers who sell their younger brother into slavery. They almost kill him. They cover it up. And I think even like, one part that's overlooked in all of like how evil what the brothers do is that they like let this, their father believe that he sent their, his son to his death. And they're like, oh, like you sent him to a place he didn't know where he was going. He got eaten by a wild animal. And so it's like no wonder that like Jacob is just like distraught. Like his favorite son, he's basically just like sent into like the, the mouth of like wild animals. And like he's totally inconsolable. And they just kind of sit there and they let their father believe this. And they sell their brother into slavery. And it's just like, how, how callous do you have to be to let this all happen to your family? Uh, and we have to ask the question, okay, why does this happen? Why do they do this? And there's no, there's no way to get around, I think, you know, from the brother's perspective, that this is absolutely evil. <laughs> they're like, you know, from just like a, a pen on paper standpoint, like they're terrible people. If you just like measure them by the weight of their actions. Uh, they're, they're terrible people, but I think to really fully understand the richness of this passage, we have to understand where they are coming from. And I think it's so easy to empathize with Joseph and it's so easy. I think in stories in general to empathize with the victim and the protagonist, if it were, uh, that sometimes we miss uh, the other side of the story. And I think looking at the story from the perspective of the brothers brings this from a kid's kingdom passage and makes it a passage for adults, <laughs> you know, where, where things aren't quite as black and white as we would like. 
uh, where things aren't as cut and dry as we would hope, uh, and that sometimes antagonists have something to be empathized with. And I think it's important to understand from the brother's perspective literally where they are coming from. And we've been going through Genesis as a church, and we know that uh, you know, their father is Jacob. All, all of these sons have the same father, but they have four different mothers. And that's when things start to get tricky. Of those two mothers, only two of them were Jacob's wives. And only one of them did he actually ever want to marry. And so already things get a little dicey, just from like a, a familial situation here. Uh, and we know from our reading of Genesis that uh, his first wife, Leah, he didn't even want to marry her. And he only married her because he was tricked into it. Uh, he really wanted to marry Leah's sister, Rachel, who was much better looking than her, like much more desirable as a wife. And you imagine just how like tense of a, of a marriage situation is to be married to the same man, sister and sister, and to have been constantly competing with each other your entire life, constantly uh, having people tell you or like, you know, through, through word or just like deed that Rachel is more desirable than you. Like her, her father, like had to trick her husband into marrying her, uh, marrying her off. Like how contentious of a situation that would be just right off the get go. And these sisters, they spend the next 20 years or so competing for the affections of their husband. And they do that by trying to bear him enough sons so that they, so that he will be pleased with them. And it's this crazy, like, game that plays out of just, like, this really twisted game of, like, sexual politics of, like, hey, give me, you know, these resources and, like, you get to sleep with our husband tonight. Like, uh, hey, sleep with my maidservant so that you can have a son because I can't have one for you. And they, like, use these two other women as, like, pawns in this game. And that's, like, the, the context out of which most of these children are born, <laughs> And, like, how contentious of a, of a family situation is that? Uh, and even, like, looking at, like, these children are like, wait, why, why am I even here? Well, let me tell you, son. <laughs> Not a very encouraging story. Uh, and, like, Rachel, the favorite wife, can't even get pregnant. All right, so there are, like, ten children later, three mothers later, in this, like, game that they're playing to try to, like, win favor with their husband. Finally, Rachel gets pregnant. And finally, she has a son and guess who that son is? Joseph. Guess who the favorite is? Joseph. And I think like being raised in an environment where your worth and like your reason for existence is like to curry favor with your father who like maybe like doesn't really care less, like couldn't care less about your mother. It's just such a toxic environment to grow up in. And then to have this son born, and immediately you're kind of like tossed out the window. Like any favor you might have had, he's like, oh, well, done with you guys. This is my son. This is my favorite son. Even like the language he uses at the end, like when he's like, my, my, my son is killed, like he's inconsolable. They're just like, you still have us. <laughs> uh, it's just an incredibly toxic situation, you know? And like, they were just brought up in an atmosphere of favoritism, insecurity, in jealousy, where everyone is just trying to compete for the, the favor of this father. Yeah. 
And this son is born and immediately he gets all the favor, all the attention, and all the affection you've been craving your entire life just because of who his mother is. And then as if that wasn't enough to kind of be like tossed aside, the kid starts to say, you are going to worship me one of these days. And he says to them, like, I'm better than you. And guess who thinks so too? Daddy thinks so. Look at this coat that proves it. And guess who also thinks so? God. You all are going to worship me one day. And maybe or maybe not, Joseph meant to come at it at like that kind of like arrogance or maybe just like naivety, but that's what they hear. And I don't think you can underestimate like the anger and the pain and the insecurity that this would cause like day in and day out for these brothers. And so when Joseph comes over that hill, it's Joseph, you know, who's not even like from their perspective, just try to imagine this. Like Joseph is coming over that hill. Who's not even working the fields with you. He was at home just like doing who knows what Joseph, who knows that he's the favorite Joseph, who's the manifestation of all your fears and insecurities and even like proof that like your worst fears about your worthlessness uh, maybe have some basis to them. And that there's, they're founded on something real. And Joseph, whose dreams say that you're going to worship him. And so I think like when that Joseph comes walking over that hill in that coat that marks him out as dad's favorite... And it's just kind of like proof of all of this. It's honestly, I think it's no small wonder that in their hearts, and they even say it out loud, they say, here comes that dreamer. Come now, let's kill him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. You know, and they sell their brother into slavery. And because of their insecurity and their identity, and the worth and the value that they have before their father. And I think as twisted and as messed up as that all is, I think that's really where the trouble begins for us too. And I think a lot of us, when we look to heaven, and when we look at God, we see a Jacob. And when we look to Jesus, we see a Joseph. And that might seem a little extreme. And I'm not saying that like most of us like in our hearts are like, you know, when we go home, we're like, ah, gosh, like I hate that guy. Like, I don't think it happens so much in like the, the, <laughs> the prefrontal cortex or like where, you know, where we have like our actual like worded thoughts. But I think that without so many words, you know, we can so easily doubt God's valuation of us. Right. And we can doubt the worth that God finds in us. And I think when we doubt that, we doubt the dreams that God has for us. And so easily we can doubt that God really wants the best for us. You know, that he's really going to take care of us. That if we really radically follow his commands, we're going to be happy. And we're going to be free and we're going to be truly at peace and truly satisfied. And I think that doubt, uh, we, we can doubt at the heart level that God really loves and values us. Like he says. And I think like for most of us, it can be rather subtle. Like it really comes out in things that we think are acceptably small. You know, it's like it comes out in things like I might not be taken care of if I don't get good grades. So maybe I'll just like skip midweek to study for this test or I'll skip this Bible study. Uh, You know, I might not be taken care of if I don't 
have this dream job, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll move without getting advice or take this job that takes me away from the church. I need friends and steady relationships in my life. Uh, so I'm not going to share my faith with these people out of fear that they might reject me or that it'll, it'll kind of rock the boat with them. Uh, you know, my kid needs to get into a great college, so it's fine to miss church on Sundays because he needs to be a great athlete, get a scholarship, uh, or, you know, skip Devo to study for their tests. Uh, or I need a relationship. There's something that God's not providing. Uh, you know, so I need, I, I need to find that in someone else. I'm going to date whoever I want. I'm going to marry whoever I want. Uh, even if they're not good for me spiritually. And I think, like, for all of us, we reach an, a, an acceptable level of righteousness. And I think, like, no, nobody quite naturally thinks, like, oh, I'm not, like, living up to the standard. I think we, we all kind of believe at a certain level that we've reached an acceptable amount of righteousness. Unless we're, like, drowning in guilt or something like that. But it's crazy because, like, I mean, all of our standards are different. <laughs> So that acceptable level of righteousness can't be true. Uh, and I think for all of us, there's a point in our faith where we don't believe God is going to provide for us. And we think like, okay, here and no further, because past this point, God doesn't value me enough to take care of me. God doesn't value me enough or love me enough or find me worthwhile enough to take care of me past this point in faith. And usually that point is the point past which we don't believe we can care for ourselves. And we don't have ourselves as a safety net to fall back on. So really, where is your faith actually? And I think for, you, for all of us, we have to think, like, what, what is that point? What is the point in my faith where I stop believing God is going to take care of me? And if I push past this, he doesn't love me enough to provide. What is the point of our faith where we don't think we can provide for ourselves anymore and we don't think God is going to? And I think we have this view deep down that the dreams God has for us to live radically, to walk in step with him, are going to cost too much. And when push comes to shove, we look at God's dreams for us, and we think that they're not going to benefit us. And we look at Jesus, and we see a Joseph. And we see a God who just wants us to give to him with nothing back. And we see Jesus walking over that hill to meet us, and to ask us to truly follow him, and we see his dreams of discipleship, and in our fear and our insecurity, we go, here comes that dreamer. Come, let's kill him. Then we'll see what becomes of those dreams. And again, I don't think we think that in so many words, but we live that in so many actions. And we say, here or no further, after that, those dreams are not valid anymore, Jesus. And we think we can kind of like parse out like the parts of the promises we believe and the parts of the promises that we don't. And we're just like, I'm just going to kill this part of Jesus and keep this part. And not recognize that you can't just kill half a man. <laughs> uh, and we don't think that God loves us enough to provide for what we need past the point where we provide, we can provide for ourselves. And we kill the dreamer. Yeah. And we kill Jesus. Right. And I really think that if we dig down, like this is an insecurity that's familiar to all of us. And I think it can get exposed when we go through trials, especially. And I remember uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, it was one of like the, uh, the hardest times of my life. And I've shared this before, but I think it bears repeating. Uh, but I had uh, just taken a step out of ministry, like just gotten out of like a year long relationship and uh, you know, out of this uh, ministry job that I had for two years. And I think both of those things just really expose like a lot of weaknesses that I had. 
and a lot of flaws that I had and just exposed so much of my shortcomings. And I, I think at that moment, I, uh, I just kind of looked forward into the future and I was confronted with just a very empty vision for the rest of my life. Things just hadn't worked out like I thought they would have. Uh, and I looked at myself and I saw very little because I, I, I saw how my flaws had contributed to those things falling apart. And I thought to myself, and I, I thought to myself, I have so much to grow in and God isn't going to let me be happy until I fix these things. And I kind of thought to myself, I was like, man, like God is just kind of done investing in me. Right. Uh, and I was, I was talking to a friend and this is like, I've told this before, but it really just sums up like the desperation I had in this moment. I was talking to a friend and I was just trying to like sum up the way that I felt. And I was like trying to tell him that I, the, the phrase I was trying to use was, I feel like I'm up the creek without a paddle. Yeah. But what I said was, I feel like I don't have a paddle for this, or I feel like I don't have a canoe for this paddle. <laughs> Which is like so much worse, like, you know, just like in the river, like I have this paddle, I'm like I'm floating away. Like, and I was just like, it was just like this weird, like, desperate Freudian slip that, like, summed up so much better, like, how I was feeling than in this, like, cultural uh, <laughs> idiom that we have. I was like, I just feel like I don't have a canoe for this paddle. Because yeah. I just, like, looked at God and I saw a Jacob. And I looked at God and I didn't see a God who was still willing to invest in me. And I saw a God who looked at me. And just like, it was disappointed in me. I saw a God whose dreams for me had only led to pain. And I saw a God who was disappointed in me and just like shook his head in disgust at how much I had fallen short. And that was my view of God and how he saw me at that time. Those were, and <laughs> it's no surprise that those were incredibly dark times for me. Uh, and I just felt so untethered and so directionless and just so scared and abandoned. And I remember like a couple months later, I was still wrestling with these things and I was like doing better with them. But I think like I was still just like kind of coming off of off of that and like figuring out life. And like I was like, OK, like maybe there's a way forward and, uh, you know, maybe things are going to work out. And I was still wrestling in a large part with these things in my heart. And it, it was getting to my birthday and I got a letter uh, from my dad who's actually here right now. Uh, and on on the front of. The letter were just like a bunch of pictures of things that we had done throughout the years and like road trips we had taken and uh, canoeing trips, uh, baseball games, things like that. Uh, like memories that I really treasure and cherish. And on the back of it, it said, uh, among other things, just said, son, I am so proud of you. And I know God's pleased with you and so am I. And I honestly, I just started crying. And... I just saw like the disparity between like the things that I thought about myself, not in so many words. Like, I don't think I would have said that all the time, but I just saw like the disparity of like how I could see myself, but just like how loved I was despite that. Yeah. And I think like, you know, throughout my life, I, my, my parents tell me that they're proud of me all the time. Like they're, they're awesome. They're awesome parents. I'm so grateful for them. I think for most of my life, there were reasons why I thought that might be true. You know, like, there, there was just, like, a valuation or, like, a resume that I had of, like, okay, like, I get good grades. <laughs> you know, like, there, there were reasons that they could be like, oh, yeah, like, Stephen, I'm proud of him because. And they didn't, like, say that. But I think, like, as a child, you can be like, oh, yeah, no, no, that, like, totally makes sense. Like, I, I got straight A's. Like, look at all the fives that Stephen gets on his AP test. Look at his SAT scores. Like, he's going to UVA. He's, 
double majoring, you know, like he's, he's on such a great path. Like, I'm proud of you. But I think like in that moment, <laughs> I didn't have any of those things. You know, and like life just hadn't kind of worked out the way that I necessarily wanted it to. I wasn't really in like the job that I wanted. I wasn't really like, I didn't have school to fall back on. I was just the most recent like big thing in my life in my mind was just a lot of failures. And in that moment, my dad expressing that just like blew my mind. Cause I just, I was just like, wow, like it's, it's not even, and I didn't like think that in the front of my head that like, oh, my parents are proud of me because of these things. But it just hit home so much more right. in that moment. And I think I was like, man, like, if this is how, like, my worldly, and no offense, like, sinful father <laughs> thinks of me in these moments, like, how much more God? And how much more the God who actually, like, created me in a much more personal way than my parents ever could? How much more does God feel this way and I think like something just started to click and it like that realization kind of like broke me for a bit and recognizing that that kind of the, the kind of love that persists even in trial like even in sin even when we don't love ourselves was just incredible and it's so hard to really see this and I, I think just naturally we don't really we're just so transactional in the way that we, we see love and the way that we see compassion that we just don't see this for ourselves. And go ahead and turn over to 1 John 3. First John 3, 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And I think there is just something, there is just something otherworldly about like parental love. And I was like talking to Seth the other day and we were like talking about this idea of like, how is it that like God just like loves us so much? And he's like, there's just something like un, unworldly or otherworldly just about like the, and I, like I, I'm sure I'm not going to understand unless I have children one day. Uh, I'm just like how a, a father or mother feels about their child. Uh, and just like the, the intrinsic value that they have <laughs> or they see in that child. And like I've, you know, talked to people uh, who like a child just like changes their whole outlook on life. And they're like, yeah, like I was just like, I was a screw up. You know, I was like partying, like doing drugs, like all sorts of crazy things. And then I had a child and like straightened out my life. And now I'm like working this job. And I'm just like, I don't, I, I'm just like working so incredibly hard just so I can care for this like beautiful little girl this beautiful little boy there's just like something incredible about the love that a parent has for a child it's like how much more our father how much more valuable does the father that put us together actually find us and how much more intrinsically valuable does that parent find us go ahead and turn to Romans 8 and I'm glad that the uh, the Jennings shared this this morning as a precursor, uh, the Holy Spirit works. And as a result, this is the love that God has for us. Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 
For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We consider it as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I think if we actually saw ourselves as God sees us, if we saw how incredibly valuable he finds us, how incredibly proud he is of us, even when we screw up, even in our dark moments, that his love outstrips the love that any worldly father could ever have for his children, that his dreams for us are to set us free and to prosper us and to bind us ever closer to him, then we are going to charge forward in faith. And we would see a God who doesn't have dreams to lift himself up, but has dreams to lift us up with him. We have a God who recognizes that radical dreams are deadly, that they cost something, but was willing to pay that deadly cost himself. Why? Because he finds us that intrinsically valuable. And he believes in his dreams so much that he's willing to pay the price of death for us and die so that we might live out those dreams and in turn dream for each other and dream for others and be willing to make that deadly sacrifice for one another. And why? Because he finds us more intrinsically valuable than a parent could ever find their child. And that's just so otherworldly. And that is so hard to get our, our tiny brains around. But you know, if we really see this, when we see Jesus coming over that hill, you know, to, to ask us to follow him, to say like, hey, follow me. You know, my, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. We're not going to see Joseph. And we're not going to want to kill the dreamer. You know, instead we're going to step out and love our coworkers enough to share with them. You know, we're going to love the body of Christ more than we love school, more than we love ourselves. We're going to be brave enough to save ourselves for a godly relationship and not a worldly one. We're going to be brave enough to give advice, uh, to get advice on the hard things in our life, regardless of whether or not we think it's going to come back in the way that we want it to. You know, we're going to be brave enough to do radical things by faith because we have a God whose love for us cannot be opposed. We have a God whose love for us and his value and his investment in us does not stop at the point where we believe that we can provide for ourselves. And we have a God who finds us so incredibly valuable that he is willing to die for us. And if we really see that, we're going to run after a God and a Jesus whose dreams aren't to lift himself up, but whose dreams are for us to be free from fear, walking radically alongside him in joy because we are so loved. 
Go ahead and turn to Galatians 5.1 and we're going to close out here. Galatians 5.1 It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And church, let's pray to see this. Let's pray to believe that. And let's pray to be able to push past the boundaries that we have when we look up to God and see a Jacob. Let's pray to be able to see God for who he is, who he promises to be, who he has been, because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Blue Ridge Podcast. My name is Seth Mitchell, and if you'd be interested in more resources like this or connecting with us, you can go to blueridge.church or join us at Burnley Moran Elementary School at 7 p.m. Wednesdays or 10.30 a.m. Sundays in Charlottesville, Virginia. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time.